and welcome to The Bee's Knees. I'm your host, J.C. Meyer. Thank you for being here. There's a lot of talk and research around saving the bees. When we hear the worrying news about threats to bees and the knock-on effect it can have on crop production and plant biodiversity, honeybees are often in the spotlight. Native bees, on the other hand, are sometimes left out of the conversation. Native bees pollinate native plants, many of which can't be pollinated by introduced bees, like the honeybee. In fact, native bees are estimated to pollinate 80% of flowering plants around the world. And bee numbers are big. There are nearly 20,000 known bee species in the world. 4,000 of them are native to North America. There are about 1,650 native bee species in Australia, and more than 200 in the United Kingdom. So today, let's get to know the native bee a bit more. And joining me to discuss their importance is Chris Helzer. He's the Nature Conservancy's Director of Science in Nebraska in the United States and the author of two books, The Ecology and Management of Prairies in the Central United States and Hidden Prairie, Photographing Life in One Square Meter. Chris, thanks so much for being with us. First off, can you share with us a little bit about the lifestyle of a native bee? Yeah, for sure. Well, first of all, there's a lot of different kinds of lifestyles with native bees. But I think the one that's most interesting is the solitary bee lifestyle, mostly because it's different than I think what people learn in school about bees, which is that bees have queens and workers in this complex system that kind of supports the entire group of them. And for the majority of native wild bees, that's just not the case. They are single moms for the most part who are trying to raise kids by themselves. And they do that by creating a nest either in a hole in the ground that they make or in a hollow plant that they hollow out and put cells into. And then they spend the majority of their time collecting food, so pollen and nectar, mostly pollen, and then putting the food in the cells, laying an egg with it, sealing it up, and then repeating that process and stacking these provisioned cells on top of each other within a nest. And again, there's no queen, there's no defense system, there's no communication with other individuals for the most part. Like That varies, of course, between species, but it's really just one mom out there doing it. And then the males of those solitary bee species really just hang out around flowers, hoping to see a female that they can mate with. And so if you're out looking at flowers and you see a bee that's just moving around frenetically, never stopping for more than a second, that's probably a male and is probably just looking for females versus a female who is very laboriously, you know, working their way around or through a flower, gathering every little bit of food that she can because she's the one that's taking it back to the net. So in a nutshell, that's kind of the solitary bee lifestyle. We hear a lot about the terms native bee, wild bee, solitary bee. Can we use those interchangeably? To some extent, yes. So wild bees would be, you know, basically any bee that's not a honeybee, or in some cases there are things like mason bees sometimes that are used where, you know, there's a person that has brought bees in and are taking care of them and using them kind of like livestock in a way to create a product or to facilitate the creation of a product. So those would be domestic bees. Everything else is pretty much a wild bee. Solitary bees would be a subset of those wild bees that have that lifestyle that I talked about. Because there are wild bees like a lot of bumblebee species that have a lot of similarities to honeybees in terms of a queen and you know division of labor. One big difference, at least with North American honeybees or bumblebees, I mean, is that 
they don't normally survive as a group through more than a season. So at the end of a season, all the bumblebees die except the ones that will be queens next year and start their own colony. So they have to restart the colony every year where honeybees tend to be able to sort of keep that going through the winter, you know, just maintain that same colony for a long time. What exactly does a native bee do best compared to, for like we said, a honeybee? There are a lot of things that honeybees can do really well, including being very efficient with cleaning out resources. They can find a species of flower that is producing the kind of food quality that they want for the hive, and they can go and get it, and they can get a lot of it very quickly because there's a lot of them, and they can communicate where it is and where it's at and how to get it, all those sorts of things. But they're also limited by their tongue length, their size, and just their habits, and the need to feed a large quantity of siblings and family members. And so there are a lot of flower species that honeybees either don't visit or aren't very good at pollinating. And that's where I think the wild bees really come in and are so important because the vast majority of flowers in North America, for example, aren't efficiently pollinated by honeybees. And so there are individuals or groups of native wild bees that are better suited to fit inside them or to reach the nectar with a longer tongue or to visit them at a certain time of day, or carry the pollen away, or come out at the right time of year. There's all these connections that have been built over long periods of time with these wild bees. And then the other part of that is that there's a resilience built up because of the diversity of wild bees available. If a few of those bees are having a rough year because of a disease or weather or what other factors, there are other wild bee species that'll be working on those same flowers. So the flowers are going to get pollinated one way or the other because there's a diversity of possibilities uh, that are coming at them to, to help them pollinate. You mentioned native bees that might run into problems in different seasons. What would you say are some of the biggest threats? I mean, the overriding problem with bees in North America is habitat loss. Habitat loss, habitat fragmentation. There are lots of other things that are problematic, you know, pesticides, disease organisms, but all of those would be much less important if we had large connected habitats. Because when you have small fragmented habitats, you have small populations, which are then very vulnerable to being, you know, sort of wiped out at a local site because of something that happens with pesticide or, you know, a disease. Climate change is another big one, of course, because that's affecting flowers and when they bloom and how they bloom and the timing of emergence of flowers and the timing of emergence of bees, which is something we should talk about, actually. But again, all of that is, I think, less important than habitat. If we had large connected blocks of habitat with a lot of flowers that were blooming from spring through fall, so that at any one point during that time, there were multiple species of flowers available so bees could choose and pick the ones that are best for their diet needs and the nutritional needs of their babies. If we had all of that, the diseases and pesticides and everything else would be less important than they are. And then just to talk about the emergence for a second, one of the things that's important, an important difference that I didn't mention earlier with solitary bees especially, is that they do tend to have a short life cycle above ground or out of their nest. So as an adult, you might have a solitary bee that's out and moving around in the landscape for maybe three, four weeks, maybe five or six weeks. And then the rest of the year, everything happens in the nest, below ground, inside a stem or whatever. And so some bees have multiple generations per year where they'll lay eggs and then those babies will hatch out and be out as adults later in the year. But a lot of them only come out one time a year. 
and they time that emergence from their nest with a particular resource or a particular group of flowers or an abundance of flowers or something else in the landscape so that they come out when it's the right time for the food and they're protected underground for the rest of the year. And so then that you know ties into climate change, of course, because if climate change is changing that schedule, we need the schedule of the bees and the schedule of the flowers to change in the same way. And we're really too early to know for sure how that's working. There's evidence both ways. There's evidence that says it looks like it's going to work well for some of these species. And it, there's evidence on other species as well. Maybe there's some risks here that we're going to have to really watch. But you know, I, said, I guess I said habitat was the overriding threat. And I think it is, but climate change may be more of an overriding threat. It's just a little bit more of an unknown at this point. Unknown, yeah. It's definitely something to keep our eye on and talk about in future episodes. I want to go back to two things you mentioned, though, specifically the habitat and nesting sites. I love what you were saying about the abundance of flowers and the variety of flowers so that every bee kind of is able to find the nectar that they need. How can we, as gardeners in our homes, make sure we are providing a good resource for a number of different bees? And second part, how can we help them with their nesting sites? Well, let me start with the nesting first. The nesting sites varies by bee species. In general, we think that bare ground is really important. And if you're a ground nesting bee, access to the soil is important. What we don't know as much about is, does that mean you have a bunch of plants growing above the ground, but if you look between the plants, you can see bare ground and then they'll nest there? Or does that mean that you need like a patch of exposed soil with very few plants growing? It obviously depends on the species, but we really don't know all that much about nesting for a lot of these species because it's really hard to find nests. And in some ways, the nests that are easiest for us to find are in the patches of open bare ground because we can see the hole and we can see the bees coming in and out. So we might be, we probably are a little biased toward that as a preferred habitat, but we do know it's important. And so in a garden situation, for example, if you can leave some areas that are just bare ground, that's probably going to be beneficial to at least some bee species. And by the way, wasps also, which are important pollinators. Wasps get a bad rap just like bees. We think they're all the same and they're not. The vast majority of wasps are also solitary. Don't sting, you know, our pollinators. And anyway, that's a whole nother podcast topic as well. So bare ground, I think is important, both in terms of patches of bare ground, but also just making sure that not every part of a garden is thatched and mulched to the point where you just don't have soil access, right? Because access to the soil is important for those bees. Also, nesting habitat for stem nesters is really just means leaving some of the stems from previous years cut high enough that they can use them. So in my personal garden, we have some wildflowers that we cut at about a 15 inch height. And then we just let them, they're perennials, so they just grow the next year and they grow three feet tall or whatever. But we've got a pretty solid group of little bees that nest in those stems every year. And it's really fun to watch them. You can see the males Again, males are crazy, but they go from stem to stem to stem, seeing if anybody's home, right? And then the females are trying to sneak in while the males aren't there. And you can just sit there and watch that in your garden just because I left those stems cut high enough, right? So a lot of it really comes down to thinking differently about the manicured garden in a way that you see it through the eyes of the bees and other pollinators that are looking for habitat, right? And so that gets us to the second piece, which is also important, which is the flowering. But that habitat piece, it really is key because especially if you live in town, there's probably not a lot of other habitat outside of gardens 
for those bees to nest in. And so it is important to think beyond just the flowers. But on the flower side, the real key really is diversity. The more species of flowers you have available, the better, because it gives the pollinators a lot of choices. And if you are out in your garden, say once a week, and you can just take note of, okay, how many things are flowering right now? And do they look different from each other? In other words, if you go out in June and the first week of June, there's a lot of things blooming and the second week of June, there's not much blooming. That would be a reason to think about, okay, what could I put in my garden that would fill that gap, right? That's a really important thing to think about. But also if you go out in the second week of June and you have three species that are blooming, but they all look kind of like little daisies, that might be something to think about too, right? Maybe I could add some legumes or some flower shapes and types that are different because that's you know, a reasonable facsimile for the kinds of resources that those flowers might provide. And, you know, there are bees that are out and active at night. So things like evening primroses or things that bloom in the evenings can be important for those. I mean, just anything you can add, anything you can do to add diversity is going to be helpful. Now, this is something that people have very different opinions on, which is, should you only use native wildflowers? And my thought on that is, it's your garden. Your garden should make you happy. That's why you have a garden, right? And there's no reason that, for example, in my garden, we have zinnias in our garden because they're big and gorgeous and we like them. And we intermix them with our native wildflowers and we see butterflies and bees on them all the time. We also have daffodils because we like them and they come up early in the spring and they're colorful. And again, like the last couple of years, the first bumblebees that I've seen each year, which are the queens that are going to start a colony, the first ones I've seen each year have been on daffodils. And so there are some reasons to be careful with non-native flowers because some of them are bred to either not produce a lot of resources or to hide those resources in a way that bees can't access them. And there are some pesticide issues you have to be careful of in terms of, you know, was it grown with a pesticide that lives inside the plant and can be dangerous. But really, apart from that, the diversity is more important than nativity, uh, the native quality of the flowers, in my opinion. And again, you'll find other people who are much more purist about that. And that's also fine. If you want to have a completely native flower garden, you should do it if it makes you happy. Variety is the spice of life. Yep. Even for bees and the diet, no one wants to eat the same thing every day. Yeah, exactly. You mentioned about stinging and wasps mm. and bees that sting. And that is quite a myth about bees. Other myths you would like to debunk? Well, I think we should talk about the stinging because I do think that's an important one. You know, I've been stung by honeybees. I've been stung by bumblebees. In both cases, I know why I was stung. Right. With bumblebees, I either was disturbing their colony and they were defending the colony, which fair enough. Or I trapped one one time against myself and it was trying to get away. Again, fair enough. I would yeah. sting too if I had that opportunity. That's exactly uh, what happened to me the last time I was stung. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it hurts. There's no question about it. And honeybees, which I think hurt much less, honeybees, I was trying to photograph some near their colony and I was close. I was probably too close. And then I got one that was on my hand and I put my fingers together and squeezed it a little bit accidentally. And it stung me. And again, okay, I'm sorry. And we right. both, you know, apologized and went on our way, I guess. <laughs> but, so, but one other myth with the stinging, well, two things. One really is that most solitary bees, and this is true for wasps also, they can't really afford to sting because it's not that they, and this is the second myth, is that they're going to pull their stinger out, right? That's not true with most bees. So with honeybees, that can happen. With most bees, they don't have a barbed stinger. So they can sting you and then fly away. 
but they mostly aren't going to take that chance because if they get into a fight and lose, they're the only one taking care of the family, right? They just can't take that risk. They would much rather get away than sting you. So in your garden, if you see a bee that's out collecting resources on a flower, the last thing they want to do is involve themselves with you, right? Which is why they'll usually fly away if they're not, you know, too distracted by what they're eating. But even if you see them and even if you come after them, their first choice will always be to run or fly because they just can't take that chance. Kind of going back to threats and what we can do to support native bees throughout the year, is there a particular season that is more dangerous? Maybe dangerous isn't the best word, but that more is difficult for native bees? And what can we do in that season that might make it a little bit easier for them? Yeah, so the spring, the early part of the season can be the trickiest for a lot of bee species. And it's why a lot of bee species don't come out of their nests until later, because there just aren't a lot of resources in the spring. Uh, Wildflowers tend to be smaller and produce fewer flowers and less resource, you know, less resource overall. But also they tend to be spread out. And a lot of the pollen and nectar that early bee species use comes from shrubs and trees. And so it's not something, I'm a prairie person. I think about grasslands and we're trying to fight off trees and shrubs that are trying to come into our grasslands a lot of times, but we don't try to eliminate them because we know, and for many reasons, but one of the reasons is that those shrubs, especially flowering shrubs, have some of the most abundant resources available during the spring. And so species like bumblebees, which are trying to get an early start, you know, that new queen bumblebee is going to need, you know, several weeks to collect enough food to keep herself alive, to provision the eggs that she's laying. And then once those eggs hatch, then she's got a bunch of workers that take care of her and she can stay inside. But for that first several, you know, month or so, like she has to survive. And if she dies, the entire potential colony goes with her. And so making sure that there are resources available for those early species of bees. And again, bumblebees are one example. There's lots of solitary bees that are around too. So anything you can do in your garden to produce flowers that bloom right at that leading edge of the spring and then fill that first month with a lot of abundance of diversity can really be helpful because they'll probably be pretty desperate in terms of what else is available around you. I know that you have a favorite bee species, the blue sage bee. Why is this bee so special? Oh, man, there's so many reasons. There's a personal history that I have with it. But I'll tell you about the bee first. So the blue sage bee is one of the only ones, maybe the only one, it's the only one I know of that we think has an affinity for a species of plant. So there are a lot of bees that have a fairly selective diet. They might just like sunflowers, right? But they'll feed from many different kinds of sunflowers. But the blue sage bee, as far as we know, only feeds from blue sage or pitcher sage. It's a salvia, salvia azuria is the name of the species of flower. And so if you don't have the flower, you won't have the bee. Now, the flower doesn't need the bee as much as the other way around because the flower has lots of things that pollinate. Pitcher sage or blue sage is very popular with lots of pollinators. But the blue sage bee needs that plant. And it has to then emerge at the right time from its you know, larval form. It pupates and it comes out as an adult at the right time for blue sage to be open and blooming. So it's one of those that we think is you know, going to be at risk from climate change. But also land management. You know, if if that bee lives in a place where all the blue sage is in a road ditch that gets mowed or in a pasture that gets grazed or in a hay meadow that gets hayed, 
if that haying or grazing happens at the wrong time, that blue seed bee comes out and there's nothing there. And then what's it going to do? Right. So I like it because it's vulnerable, but I also like it because it's gorgeous. It's like eye color in many colors, but the particular blue in the blue eyes of the blue sage bee is just amazing. And it matches the blue of the color of the flower that it feeds on, which is just too great to ignore. And so I like it for that reason also. It's just a cute little fuzzy bee that's kind of a silvery gray with these bright blue eyes, kind of a mottled blue eyes. I mean, yeah. Anyway, look it up. It's great. Okay. I also have a personal history with it, which starts from the first time I ever saw one. I took a photo of it, but I didn't know what it was. And I was really early on in learning about bees. And it looked enough like a honeybee that I just assumed it was a honeybee because it was a little smaller, but it's like, you know, bees come in multiple sizes. Sometimes they're bigger or smaller in the same species. And I gave a presentation on prairies to a group of biologists in Missouri. And I brought up this picture of the honeybee and I was talking about bees and why they were important. And there was somebody in the front row who was grimacing the whole time I was talking about this bee. And so after I finished talking, he raised his hand and he said, actually, I wanted to tell you about this bee that you said it was a honeybee because it's not, it's way better. And here, let me tell you about it. And so he was the one that introduced me to that. And then we started talking about it and thinking about it. And where I had photographed that bee had been a cornfield, say six years earlier. And it was in the middle of this county in Nebraska that's mostly cornfields and pitcher sage or blue sage just isn't very common. Like, I don't know the nearest plant to that site was probably 10 to 15 miles away at best. And yet, not too many years after that cornfield was turned back into prairie habitat with that plant being included, that bee had shown up at that site. Wow. And neither of us could really explain how that had happened. Like we see it happen all the time, but we still don't really know how it happens. We assume that they can smell it or sense it in some way, but from 15 miles away, right? Or are some of those bees just striking out randomly in different directions, hoping to come across something and dying if they don't find it, which is also an amazing story, right? Right, exactly. So either way it happens, makes me love the bee even more. And I think I've seen it three times in my life. Wow. So I saw it the first time and I've seen it twice since. So I don't see it very often. I photographed it on a flower. And the third time I saw it, I actually caught it because we were working with some people on bees. And I just happened to see it and I caught it to show people. And we chilled it enough that they could take a close look at it. And I took a picture and then it warmed up and flew away. But I, clearly I want to see it again. So I keep looking. Yeah. Every time I pass by Blue Sage, I pause just for a second to see if there's a Blue Sage bee on it. I think we're all going to look for the Blue Sage bee now. Every time we pass by the plant. Oh, that's a wonderful story. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Last question. Anything else you would like to share about native bees? How amazing they are, their importance, what we can do to help? Yeah, I think I would encourage everybody to look at the world through bee goggles sometimes. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, like earlier, I talked about if you're in your garden, you know, once a week, just take accounting of what's available. And that's kind of what it means to look through the world with bee goggles, I guess, or just look through the eyes of a bee, you know, evaluate the world around you from that perspective. And so that can include looking for nesting habitat. It can mean looking for flowering habitat. But I think the other thing that we really haven't talked about yet, but it's important is that these bees are tied to a nest, right? So that solitary bee mother has a nest that she can't get too far away from. So there's a radius around that nest that is really her universe that she can feed in. And within that circle, she needs to find 
all the resources that she needs to stay alive. She can't go two miles away. A bigger bee might be able to go that far. A bumblebee could probably go two miles, but they don't want to. But we're really talking about the size of, you know, a square block or a couple of blocks in a city as being the universe for some of these really small bees. And I think if you think about the world in that way, and then look at the resources available at that scale, you can just sort of put a bunch of circles across the ground, across the earth, and think, if I was a bee nesting in that circle, how would things look for me, right? Would I be able to survive? And it just changes the whole way that you look at your surroundings, if you think about it from the perspective of a bee. And I think it's really helpful. And it doesn't mean that you have to make every circle on the earth bee habitat. But the circles that you have some influence on, it's a way to think about how could I improve the situation for a bee that might be living in this little circle near me, right? So that's what I would say. I think that's a really helpful way to just explore the world around you and be helpful to bees at the same time. Bee goggles. I loved everything Chris shared with us, but especially appreciated the reminder that thinking like a bee is the best way to support them. Thanks so much to Chris Helzer for joining us today. Read the show notes to learn more about Chris, the work he does, the books he wrote, and see some of his beautiful prairie photography. You'll find it all at our website, thebeesknees.website. While you are there, why not sign up for our newsletter? And if you enjoyed today's show, it would mean a lot if you could leave a review, but more importantly, tell a friend. It really helps get the word out not only about the show, but even more importantly, about bees. Thanks again for listening. I appreciate your time. I'll see you back here in two weeks when we're going to explore one of the topics Chris mentioned, and that's nesting sites and the best way we can build for bees. Until then, keep buzzing.